dive in here today. I, I read a quote this week that said, there's an implicit handshake between a society and its engineers. We hardly have a choice but to trust that the constructed environment we live in is safe and sound. When an engineer seals a design, like for a bridge or a building or so, so, so forth, he or she takes responsibility for its accuracy and safety to the general public. Now, every day, you know, we, we get in our cars, we, we trust that the brakes will work. Uh, we sit in various structures, we trust these girders and the structure will hold up. Um, and we get in airplanes, we might get in an elevator, we trust, the, we put this you know, just implied trust that they did their homework. And we, ultimately, we are hoping and trusting that these engineers did the design well. They did their homework. They, they did their due diligence. They ran the calculations. Maybe they used some finite element modeling and all kinds of cool simulation, but they did it. We, we have to trust that they did it. Uh, and we place confidence in these things, and then we just go on our way. But the quote went on and said this, but to err is human, and that includes engineers. So we try to develop conventions and processes that can catch and correct for mistakes before they get too far. Uh, and this is true. We end up with, with standards and codes and regulations that we have to hold the, the design to to make sure that it's safe and that we can gain an even higher degree of confidence. Oh, was that checked? Was that, is that built the code? Uh, that's a way of gaining even more confidence by checking these things out. And the reality is, we do make mistakes. We're human. As engineers, I'm, I'm an electrical engineer, we make mistakes. Sometimes the mistakes are minor, and you just say, oh, that thing did, uh, didn't quite work the way we wanted it to. Other times, it's a catastrophe, and human, human life is lost. Um, so it can, it can go a lot of different ways. I, I work with an engineer that... He says, he's known for saying this, like almost everything that we have and we've developed is resting on the lessons learned from the previous engineering attempts. So every little improvement that we have is usually a result of someone tried it this way and found that, oh, that either worked or it didn't work. Or a problem, oh, we got to change that. That was a problem. And so you just slowly keep turning the knobs right there. Okay, now that's sort of, that, that seems to work well. And you base it on, in large part off of all the lessons learned before us. And so we gain confidence as we go. But last week we saw Peter, as Kevin taught this, in his second letter to the churches in Asia Minor, writing to give them a multifaceted, evidential-based foundation of great confidence. And today we've come to what I believe is one of the highest rungs of his ladder of confidence. And I believe it's a case that we would do well to pay attention to. So I'm going to real quickly uh, say a prayer before we get rolling into this. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. We're thankful that we can trust in it, that it is reliable, uh, that it is God-breathed. And Lord, we come here today seeking for you to teach us, to guide us, to uh, just to cut into us so that we can be convicted and know what you want us to do, where you want us to go, how you want us to live our lives on this earth, that we may be well equipped for what it is you're putting before us. 
And Lord, this passage here in 2 Peter has, a, has great import for us as we, want, as we walk on this earth with all kinds of different things around us. Uh, let us have a great firm confidence as a result of looking in to your word and gazing at your majesty. May we see this is incredible how confident we can be in you and the word you've given to us. We ask that you do these things now in Jesus' great name. Amen. So I'm going to read here 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Kevin covered 16 through 18 last week, but let's go ahead and stand as we read this. I always sort of like to stand as we read God's word. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the days of Nehemiah when they stood and Ezra read from the podium. It's just sort of cool to stand and give it, give it a position of honor. It says in first, or sorry, 2 Peter 1, 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And, and we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. You can be seated. So, in Second Peter, we see Peter starting this list of evidences to give the early church a foundation of confidence in his testimony. Peter said, we didn't make this stuff up. And his first point, he says, is he recalls an incredible visual experience that he beheld with his eyes. He said, I saw, you know, he was referring back to the transfiguration, and we saw him. We were eyewitnesses to this. Christ in his glory. And if you remember the narrative from the transfiguration in the Gospels, he sees him like his face shining like the sun, his outfit glowing like lightning. I mean, this would be incredible. And if that wasn't enough, Peter says more in Second Peter here. He says, not only did we see this, we heard the Father's audible voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, if we were to rank this, experience that Peter had in terms of human experiences on the earth. and I mean, you would have to look at this and say, I'm not sure there's a much higher pinnacle of experience than this, to see the glorified Christ and then to hear God the Father. And yet, as good as that was, Peter continues on giving them a third and final case for establishing utmost confidence and keeping these, this early church focused on what mattered most, as he says in 19. 
and we have the prophetic word made more sure. Uh, this is sort of cool because the word translated more sure right over here, or more sure, this is sort of spanning the paragraph, um, it's, and that's NASB, ESV translated fully confirmed, the Lexham English Bible translated more reliable. Uh, in the Greek, it's an adjective, babeos, which is a word to mean confident, firm, secure, and sure. But Peter does something sort of cool because he puts a little suffix at the end here and it changes it a, a tad. And it's sort of cool with Greek that how they could do this is that they had different degrees. And one of the degrees they had is called the comparative degree. And it put that word into the comparative degree, which is the second strongest degree in Greek. And, it, and it's one, as it may sound, it's meant to show forth a comparison between two things. And it's establishing that this one is more. So it's, this is more sure. This is more firm. This is more reliable. So the translators have done a pretty good job by inserting not, they just didn't say it's, the word is sure. They said it's more sure. Why? Because it has this comparative degree, a suffix added at the end. It's as if Peter is saying the eyewitness experience of seeing Christ transformed and hearing the majestic voice of God the Father. That is awesome. And I was there and I heard it and I was an eyewitness to that. But we can have something with even more surety, even more confidence than my testimony just telling you that I saw it is that you have the prophetic word. And you can take that to the bank with even a higher degree of confidence. You know, you might have had someone tell you, you know, I saw a vision. I heard from God. I, I had a dream. I heard a word. I felt a presence. These are all personal experiences that we at times, when the Lord does something, we have these experiences, just like Peter has told us. But there's something that is even at a higher plane of confidence than personal experience, and that is God's prophetic word. Now, I want to investigate a few questions here as we dive into this section, and the first one is, why is the prophetic word more sure than a human experience that is relayed to us? And I think the answer he gives us, he establishes it in verse 20 and 21, a fairly good answer, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Why is the prophetic word more sure than, it, than experience? Simply put, it is directly from the source, which is God. Think of it this way. If having a human eyewitness experience, it's great. And if I was to come tell you I saw something, you'd say, well, that's awesome. But ultimately, it's based on my human witness to you. A human being getting to experience an audible event, that's great. But again, I'm coming to you with a, a human testimony that I heard or saw this thing. And so it's ultimately based on a human witness. On the other hand, with the prophetic word, 
Who is the source? What is its foundation? What is its basis? God himself. Let me look at, look at it this way. Is there anything that God cannot do? Anything in the scripture that you'd say, yep, there's something God cannot do. There's only one that I know of. There is one thing is impossible for God to do. There, there, exactly. It is impossible for God to lie. I think Michael and I talked about this several years ago at a life group. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Whereas, let's ask another question. On the contrary, what is man's track record for truthfulness? Not real good. I mean, I'll stand before you today. You know, you might say, you know, People like Joel and, and Nick and Derek and the elders and the people that serve as our... They, it's impossible. They, they're not, they don't ever lie. Well, I'm not saying that's a, that's a regular thing. I just go around lying. I, I hope that I'm walking with Christ. But the reality is, I have to tell you, I've lied. And if I was asked, asked for a raise of hands, if you didn't raise your hand, I would probably... Well, I'm not sure what I would do. But anyway, I'd have to question the veracity of whether you're telling me the truth or not. So the point is, as Romans 3, 4 says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. So foundationally, with God's word, we immediately have a more firm basis than any human experience that's been told to us via some testimony. The basis is 100% truthful. Now, Peter says it in a unique way. He says, first of all, of first importance, he says, know this. He uses this proton, which comes from protos. Like as engineering, we, we, we make prototypes before we release it and make a real product. It's the first one we've ever built. We make a prototype. He said this, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is the matter of one's own interpretation. You say, well, why not? Well, because no prophecy was ever made by the act of a human will. Okay, so whose will was it? He answers that one too. It was the Holy Spirit's will and the Father's will to speak this through the Holy Spirit into this prophet. It's as if he's saying, you know, you look at this, you say, the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, these guys, they weren't writing down their own personal view of what they thought would happen when Christ came. They were writing down what God was breathing through them. It wasn't their own will. Oh, I think that he's going to come to the town of Bethlehem, of Ephrathah. No, that was God who said that. He'll come through Bethlehem. And Peter says it this way, they spoke from God. Their words that they were pinning and, and writing forth was as if, you have to see this, it's God speaking. There's God's will in this. Think of the significance, just briefly for us today. In our world, we are, this world is filled with lies and traps and illusions and mistruths and propaganda. Uh, and think about that we've been, what we've been given here with the Holy Scriptures, especially as prophetic words. I mean, we were talking the other day about artificial intelligence, and there are these new chatbots that have been released, and, 
And I was hearing from my son at the high school that he was, oh yeah, don't, haven't you heard about all this? Yeah, they, you can just, you know, you need a term paper written for an English class? Just seed the AI with a little bit of your language, seed it with the little year you thought how, what you think about, and then just say, type a letter or write a, a, a term paper about, you know, the rise of the Roman Empire. And it'll write, it'll write a term paper. And then you hand it in. And the teacher, he told me, it's incredible how good it is. And it's hard to tell that it wasn't written by that individual who says that, oh, this is my term paper. That's the kind of world we live in. It's easy to propagate lies. Which brings us to another question that I wanted to cover. Uh, given this highest level of confidence in the prophetic word, what are we to do with this word? Well, Peter gives us, and he just answers that one directly. Uh, he gives us uh, an illustration. He says, you would do well to pay attention to this, uh, this prophetic word as to a lamp shining in the dark or a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What happens when you're in pitch black, absolute darkness? Have you ever been in a cave? Maybe you have fantastic caverns, one of these places where they decide, hey, we're going to just check this out, watch this. And they kill the lights. Or we were, we were in a mine in Colorado once, we were on a tour in a mine deep inside the Rocky Mountains down by San Juan in the San Juan region in Silverton. And they got us back, hey, let's turn the lights out. You can sort of see what it would have been like in an old mine or a little tiny you know, a little thing on your helmet? Well, they did that. It's, it's absolute dark. You couldn't see your hand this close to your face. Your eyes are rendered completely useless. Here's one that's maybe a little closer home to me. Have you ever gotten up at night, you walk across, and it's dark, and you step on a Lego? <laughs> that's happened in my house. We have a lot of Legos. And when you step on a Lego at 1 a.m., going to go into the bathroom, you're going to wish you had turned on the lights because it hurts bad. Those are pretty sharp little things. Anyway, Peter says they're in a dark place, but they've been given a light. The light is this prophetic word of God. The Old Testament psalmist says it this way. They say, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. And if, as we walk in the dark, you need that lamp. And that's the picture of this, just a lamp. And if you know a Hebrew lamp, they're a little thing with a little bit of olive oil in there. You know, and they'd keep them running, a little wick about that big. Keep that thing running. If you had to get up to go to the bathroom, you just, you, 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 know, you hold that lamp, you walk, you know, you don't have electricity. That's the kind of lamp. He's saying it's a lamp like that, the prophetic word guiding them and giving them direction and illuminating a path. He continues on with this illustration. He contrasts the, the present dark hour where they need the prophetic word, but then he talks about a future day when, when the day will dawn and the morning star will arise in, the, in their hearts. And this obvious, I really believe, is an incredible expression pointing towards Christ's return and that view that we see in Revelation and in 1 Corinthians 15 where we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye and then the reality of the, we won't need the sun and the moon anymore because the Lord will illumine everything and we will be changed and we will be like Him. Have you heard these expressions? And the glory of the Lord will shine even through us. And that is cool as, as we know Christ is 
the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Peter sort of brings that into view as well. But a third question I want to look at is, why is Peter making such a strong case to the believers in Asia Minor regarding their confidence in the prophetic word of God? Why is he laying forth this multifaceted, evidential-based list with all this confidence? Well, here's why, I think. Remember when you studied the Bible, chapter breaks weren't in the original. So let's just keep reading what his next statement was. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. You get that? People will fall for it. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This is written to believers. This is written to the church. This will happen, he says, and he's in the way he says, I know it'll happen, because look what I, I can look back in my history books. And false prophets arose in Israel, many of them, and people were misled by them. And he says, just like that was the case, there will also be false teachers among you. How do you combat a false teacher? I pull out the sword of the Spirit. I pull out the one offensive weapon that Paul says we have. What is that? The Word of God. How do you combat the false teacher? Pay attention to the prophetic Word of God that's been inspired by God. The one that you can have the most confidence in. Know it and know it well. If we don't know it well, if we don't pay attention to it, if we don't stay in it, then the false teaching will wreak havoc upon us, exploiting Christians, just like he says. And Paul speaks to a similar situation in the Colossian church. He says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Notice, keep defrauding you. That's something that obviously he says is happening. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. And get this, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. How is he misleading and defrauding these believers in the Colossian church? I had a vision, and it'll sound good. And you got to be wary of that. You have something more sure than the human experiential vision that some guy may come along and tell you that he had. How do you combat the false teacher? The prophetic Word of God. It will sound enticing. It will sound good. The teacher will come with these things. But it will defraud you. It will exploit you. It will turn the truth and mis malign it. Mix it in with a bunch of air. And this, my friends, is exactly why I believe Peter wanted to stir up that church in Asia Minor. And I would say we might as well stir ourselves up here today. Because he says in, in 2 Peter 3, he gives, you know, I always like it when an author gives us a purpose statement. Well, God's purpose statement in the letter we're studying is this. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which 
I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior spoken by your apostles. This is what Peter wanted to do with this church that he's writing, and I want to do it here today. The holy prophets, he says, remember what they said. Remember the words of the holy prophets. The prophets that were moved by the Holy Spirit. The prophets that I just told you about were not moved by their own will, but the will of God. The prophets that were speaking for God. And the awesome thing about today is we have all their words. God's word written right here in our Bibles. We have it on our phones. We have it on the internet. We can study it to the nth degree today. There are things that you used to have to have whole libraries of concordances. and they, I can, You could right now check me out on that comparative degree. You could click on that word, Baseos, and go in and say, is it, does it have that? Sub oh, yes, it does. Oh, what is the, what is the gender? What is the, what is the case? What is the degree? You can do it all right here in your seats. We have no excuse for not knowing his word. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, this verse I absolutely love. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. This is an incredible reality. This one reality is what gives us as believers an objective basis that is certain and it transcends human will or opinion. You know, um, I'm an engineer. worked 25-ish years in engineering. And many times I have to work to figure out what's going on with a complicated circuit. We start with a design, we work on but I can tell you already, a complicated circuit very rarely works the way you want it to on prototype number one. So you start looking at it and you work with it and you try to get it. Eventually you get it out in the field. You say, oh, we're done. We get it out. After you've figured all the nuances out. And then, guess what? A problem. I'll get a call. Hey, Joel, we had a failure over in Malaysia. Over in Malaysia. We had a unit that went, went bad. Power supply blew up. I'm like, what? We have tested this thing to the nth degree. Why would the power supply be blowing up in the field? Well, then along, we have to investigate and figure out. And, and what's cool is all the while you're doing all the study, all the way back to the beginning, when you design it, field it, fix and sustain errors, you can always rest on the properties of electrons. They will behave the way they're meant to behave. And so when you have a, a problem, you as an engineer can know, well, this isn't a matter of me just thinking I know what the problem is. There is a real problem. And there's an objective reality in the problem that I need to somehow figure out. I have a young guy that works for me, and we were talking about it, and we're, we're into one problem that we've been chasing for years because it only shows up periodically, and that makes it really hard to figure out. But I told him, I was like, at the end of the day, when we turn around and look back, it'll all make sense. You'll say, ah, I get why it did what it did because this line of code interacted with this, and 
and this, this thing did this, and we had a reflection that happened weird on this one transmission line, and, and, it, and you'll be able to explain it, hopefully, if we actually ever figure it out. But anyway, you, you'll be able to explain it, because engineering is studying absolute reality of things, trying to make real things work. And so objective reality is a big deal. There is a definitive reason as to why the electrons are behaving the way they are. That's the way God made it. And so too with God's prophetic word. It's not a matter of one's interpretation. Why not? Because no prophecy was ever made by the act of a human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. John Piper said it this way. I like this quote. He says, Scripture's meaning is objective, not subjective. The meaning of Scripture does not change with every new read or every new reading. It cannot be twisted to mean whatever we like. It is what it is, unchanging and unending. God's prophecies are objective. They have an absolute truth and certain meaning to them. Now, I agree, there are times we may scratch our heads and wonder, what in the world does this prophecy mean? I get that. But that does not negate the fact that the prophecy has an absolute meaning that is certain that we can, will probably one day look back just like we are when we look at Christ. We say, oh, don't you see those 400-some prophecies? They were, they were met to a, to a T in Christ. And yet if you're way over here looking forward and you read the prophecies, you go, how's that all going to work out? But it didn't negate the fact that the prophecy had an objective reality. Now, the best way to illustrate this is to actually look at an Old Testament prophecy. Now, for those that are in, my, in our Sunday school class, I hate to tell you this, but we're going to go back through something that you've all heard before. So you'll just, if you want to get out and check out now, that's fine. But if you want to just stick around, we're going to go to a passage that recently I've had to sort of pour into, and I was just shocked by the incredible accuracy and the objective reality that was in it. It's a passage that if you've ever read it, you would be like, what in the world is going on here? Meandering of all kinds of weird, now the king of the north is going to do that, and the king of the south, then his daughter does that, and then he'll rise, and he'll make a siege ramp, and it'll be a wall, and then they're going to do that, and then after some time, they'll make peace. And you're like, what is all this? How do I make any heads or tails of this? Well, it has absolute meaning. It had objective reality, and I'm going to show you by going through 355 years of human history in 18 verses. What we have is Daniel chapter 11. This is his last vision, last prophecy of his life. He's probably mid-80s, early 90s, somewhere in there. He didn't go back with the first little wave of exiles. It was a year or two prior. He's still wondering what's going to happen with Israel because they start working on the temple, but then it gets shut down. Things aren't going. They've got a lot of enemies. He's wondering, Lord, what will happen? to my people. He hits the ground for 21 days. He doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. And he makes it very clear. I've ate no tasty food. I had no wine. He is is distraught to ask the Lord, what will happen? And the Lord, true to form in in the book of Daniel, gives him an answer. And it's an incredible answer. He sends him this vision, this angel giving him these words. He pins it down for us to now read in 2023. And I want us to go back into this because it's, it's actually an incredible section. It's a section that 
is in, incredibly accurate as you look back on it. So accurate that people say, oh, that could never be written by Daniel in 536 B.C. Had to be written after these events happened. Let's go on this journey fairly quickly here. I'm going to try to move rapidly. It starts out in Daniel 11.2. And if those of you guys have never read Daniel 11, sit down this afternoon, read it. It's pretty wild. Anyway, we'll really read at least the first, you know, 18, 19 verses here. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Let's see how this compares to what happened in history. After Cyrus, that's the Persian Empire of the day when Daniel hears this prophecy, you have Cambyses, followed by pseudo Smyrtus, had a short reign, followed by Darius I, Hystaspes, Darius the Great, uh, and then you have Xerxes. Also in the Hebrew, they would write it Ahasuerus. Interestingly, uh, uh, Xerxes, the fourth king, he gained far more riches. Surprise, surprise, just like the prophecy said. And just like the prophecy said, when it says he's going to come strong, he's going to arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Well, that happened. 480 BC. Xerxes mounts a huge campaign in the, in the Persian Wars to avenge his father's losses. He goes, he ultimately loses these, the, the, at the end of the day. He doesn't defeat Greece, but he creates great animosity between Greece and Persia, which will play into the story. Here's a little map of how it unfolded. Xerxes coming in from this region, attacking the Greek city-states. Big battles that we've named certain events in our society over, like the Marathon. The Battle of Marathon in here. Battle of Thermopylae was a pretty big one, but one of the decisive ones was the Battle of Salamis right here in this port. Xerxes' navy was rendered pretty much destroyed, and Xerxes didn't accomplish what he wanted to do against these Greek city-states, and he went back home. The story goes on. And a mighty king, it says in verse 3, will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside them. So after Persia came Greece, as we saw in the previous verse. A mighty king did arise in 336. A very mighty king did arise. That would be Alexander the Great. And he was undefeated in battle. But as soon as he had arisen and conquered all kinds of land, he died at a young age. A lot like it says, but as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up. Well, he died at age 32. This is a, gives you an idea of his conquering. He starts out in Macedonia, works his way all conquers Persia. He has, extends the borders far to the east of where Persia ended up, also down in, deep into the south. He conquered great land in a very short time period. Uh, but as soon as he had conquered his, all this land, he dies fairly young. And what happens to his kingdom? Well, it ends up being parceled out to his generals. His sons were killed. Both of his sons were killed. He, of course, now is dead. 
Just like it says, though, it, it, he, he will not be according to his authority. So he, it isn't like he had the authority to say, I want you to lead there. I want you to lead there. I want you to lead there on his deathbed. That didn't happen. He didn't have that. It just got parceled out to his generals. Sons were killed. And there were four distinct ones. Cassander ruled Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus governed Thrace, Asia Minor. Seleucus took the rest of Asia, and ultimately, we'll look at this in a second, starts the Seleucid Empire, which will be known as the kings of the north. And then Ptolemy reigned over Egypt and Palestine in the south. Also the Ptolemic Empire, called the king of the south in this prophecy. Now, just to set a little bit of a stage for the next verse, you got to understand that right at the beginning of this onset, there was a guy that sort of controlled the Babylonian region and, and southern Asia Minor areas, and that was Antigonus. He was a problem. Now, Seleucus I was actually a satrap in Babylon, got run out of town by Antigonus. He ends up coming down here to the king, kingdom of, and making an alliance a little bit with Ptolemy. We'll see that play out in the next verse. Verse 5, then the king of the south, that's Ptolemy, will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. Well, Ptolemy, the king of the south, did truly well. He did grow strong, just like the prophecy says. And after some events in Babylon, Seleucus I that I just told you about, he sought refuge in Ptolemy's court. Um, Seleucus I then became an admiral for, for Ptolemy to fight against Antigonus. The, the guy was sort of sandwiched in between. Seleucus, though, ended up with a far larger dominion than Ptolemy in the south. And thus you can see it play out in the map that we have Ptolemy down here in the south and Seleucus, no more Antigonus anymore, as Seleucus and Ptolemy together defeated them. But in so doing, Seleucus ends up with a massive amount of land, a massive dominion. And as the prophecy said, it will be a great dominion indeed. Can we trust God's prophecies? Do we see them maybe lining up with an objective reality that's bearing out? It gets better than this. Uh, after some years, they, king of the north and the king of the south, will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of, south, of, the, king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well and he who supported her in those times. Now what, what ends up happening in history is Ptolemy I eventually dies. That's the king of the south. Ptolemy II takes the throne. That's his, Philadelphus was his name. And he becomes king of the south. In the north, meanwhile, Seleucus I was assassinated and his son Antiochus I became king. But then he died, leaving the kingdom to Antiochus II. So what we have now is a king in the north, Ptolemy II, and Antiochus II is, I said that wrong, the king of the south, Ptolemy II, the king of the north is Antiochus II. So, after some years, they, that's Antiochus II and Ptolemy II, they decide to form an alliance. That's exactly what happened. 250 B.C., Ptolemy II and Antiochus II made this peace agreement. And part of that agreement was Ptolemy in the south giving his daughter, Berenice, 
to Antiochus II in marriage. Exactly like it says. The daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But Antiochus in the north had to divorce his current wife, Laodice, to make this all sort of work and make the peace agreement happen. That becomes critical because when Ptolemy II dies and it's Antiochus says, yeah, I made that peace agreement, but I really want to bring my old wife back. So when Ptolemy II died, Antiochus II takes Laodis back. What ends up happening fulfills the rest of this prophecy. Laodis poisoned Antiochus II. Thus, when it says, nor will he remain with his power, the he there is Antiochus II. He lost his power. He was killed. What about Berenice and her son? Well, she's killed by Laodice or her minions. Well, what does it say here? But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in. Can we trust God's word? Does it seem like it does have an objective reality when God's giving the prophecy? I think it does. Now this Laodice's son, Seleucus II, ultimately becomes king. You'd say, oh God, that's pretty cool. It keeps going. It gets better than this. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place and he will come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. So this, this guy arising is in the south. He's going to arrive, go in and he's going to go into the fortress of the king of the north. And he, the guy in the south, will deal with them and display great strength. Well, what happened was Bernice's uh-oh. It was working so well. There, I'll just let it go to two. That's fine. Berenice had a brother. It was a descendant of her line, Ptolemy III. He became king in the south. How would you feel about Antiochus, the guys up in the north, that they killed, well, not Antiochus, but Laodice. Let's talk about Laodice. How would you feel about Laodice right about now? You, you're probably not real thrilled to Laodice. Neither, neither was Ptolemy. He was determined to avenge his sister's death. So thus the outbreak of the third Syrian war as Ptolemy III marches on the king of the north, exactly what it says. And he attacks the king of the north at Antioch in Syria. And he, what does he do? He kills Laodice. He conquered much of the adjacent, adjacent territory I, just, I believe, displaying himself with great strength, just like the prophecy says. The war became known as the Laodicean War, since Laodicea was the, sort of the trigger point. Now, how did he display this great strength? Well, look at his domination. This is a map showing the Laodicean War. Ptolemy III marches to the king of the north, destroys their, their, their army at Antioch, pushes all the way over into the Seleucid kingdom, pushing them back, all the way back into areas of former Babylon. And so he did display the great strength, surprise, surprise, exactly the way the prophecy said he would. Now, story goes on. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he, that's Ptolemy, will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south. That'd be the latter is the king of the north. That's the latter. He will enter the realm of the king of the south. But 
he'll end up just returning to his own land. Won't go over too well. Well, surprise, surprise, it happens exactly this way. Ptolemy III, in the Laodicean War, goes in, pushes back the armies of the north, and this is a quote I found in, from a history report that said, Ptolemy III returned to Egypt in 245 B.C., reputedly taking with him 40,000 talents of gold and the statues of Egyptian gods which had been looted centuries before by the Persians. So, did God get it right here that he's going to take their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold back to Egypt? He did, even down to those little details. God captures exactly what happened. And then verse 9, you'd say, well, what is this about? Well, Seleucus II in the north, he finally worked up the courage to go attack Egypt in 242, but he was unsuccessful and he returned to his own land, exactly like the prophecy said. Now, his sons, that's the, the king of the north, will mobilize and assemble a great multitude of great forces in verse 10. And one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. So the king of the north, Seleucus II, we were just reading about, he had two sons, just like the prophecy said. Seleucus III and Antiochus III. Those were his two, two sons. These sons made great efforts to strengthen Syria and regain Asia Minor and deal with Egypt, the king of the south. But there was one that sort of emerged as the more powerful, Antiochus III, who will later be called Antiochus the Great. And he pushed on through. He kept on coming and he overflowed as he marched down in 219 and 217 BC in a series of wars called the Fourth Syrian War. He pushes the king of the south's armies back and back and back. And by the way, just I'm going to pause for just a second. Why is this even given to Daniel? You'd say, what is going on with talking about all these Gentile kings moving for position? What land happens to be sitting between Seleucus, the Seleucid Empire, and the Ptolemaic Empire in the south? Does anyone know that little piece of land right there? Israel. All these battles that we're talking about, it's a constant jockeying for position, pushing through Palestine. Oh, no, I'm going to push you back up. Oh, no, I'm, com I'm coming back. I'm pushing you back down. That's why this is critical for Daniel's people. His people are in the midst of all this turmoil back and forth. But anyway, back to the story. Antiochus III pushes his way down in the Fourth Syrian War, pushing Ptolemy's armies back. And even this statement that he'll, he'll make... He'll get, get victory all the way up to the very fortress. Well, here's a quote, another quote that I find interesting in alignment with the prophecy. The campaigns of 219 and 218 BC carried the Seleucid armies from the north almost to the confines of the Ptolemaic kingdom. They pushed so far in, conquering all of Palestine, getting all the way down, turning in towards Egypt, fulfilling verse 10. Now the story goes on. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter, that's the king of the north, will raise a great multitude, but the multitude will be given into the hand of the former. That's the king of the south. When the multitude is carried away, his heart, the king of the south, will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. 
Well, here's how this plays out in history. Ptolemy IV was furious that Antiochus the Great had made such a deep penetration into his lands. He sends armies to fight him, just like it says. The king of the south, he's, he's enraged by this. And he goes to fight. Antiochus III responds. The latter here, Antiochus III, will raise a great multitude. Well, it's known in the history books as a huge battle. We'll see it in a second. 62,000 soldiers, 6,000 horsemen, and 102 elephants to try to counter Ptolemy IV's moves. Thus, the battle of Raphia unfolds with all these elephants and things of the day. And despite a much smaller army, Ptolemy IV forces defeat Antiochus III. They've, it's cool. They've made some cinematic recreations of this battle. It's pretty cool to watch. They sort of show the Greek formations and how they battled. But nonetheless, just as it said, that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. Well, that's what happened. Ptolemy's smaller forces still defeated Antiochus III, pushing him back. Yet, here's the kicker, Ptolemy was prideful in his victory. When the multitude was carried away, his heart would be lifted up. He's caused all kinds of people to die that day, but he ultimately didn't prevail. He didn't finish off Antiochus III. On June 22, 217 B.C., at the Battle of Raphia, yes, Ptolemy had a victory, but he, he said, I've conquered him. I've done, I've done what I came to do. But he did not finish off Antiochus III. And the story goes, if, if you were looking at a map, this would all have been down, way down in the south now, as I said, at Raphia. You could go there today. The modern town's named Rafa. Hence the, the name has carried through in history. If we go on, for the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. There'll be a lot of people that don't like that Ptolemaic empire, including the violent ones amongst your people, Daniel. They will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north, Antiochus, the great will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south, the Ptolemaic forces, will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him, Antiochus the great, coming against the Ptolemaic forces in the south, Antiochus will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. And he will stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his mind. Now, how did this play out? Over time, Antiochus III gathered great strength, similar to what it says here. And what he, did, what he did is he allied himself with Philip of Macedonia. Why? Because there was a, the Roman Empire's gaining ground. It's gaining steam off there, back off to the east, back over towards, you know, Macedonia. Antiochus the Great allies himself with Philip, the uh, Philip of Macedonia, and they put together a great multitude of people to, de to defend against Rome. But more than that, something happened in between here. If it'll let me pause right there. Ptolemy IV died in the south, and his four-year-old son became king, Ptolemy V. 
This allows Antiochus the Great, it's time to move against the king of the south. So, I'll raise this, and after an interval of some years, I've waited now, Ptolemy IV has died, it's time to press on with an army and much equipment. And I'm going to rise up against the king of the south, and that's exactly what Antiochus III did. He came and he attacked Ptolemy V, the, the young child king. He attacked him in Palestine with help from Macedonia, Philip of Macedonia, and who else? The violent ones amongst Daniel's people joined in in this, this initial struggle in Palestine. Um, after the battle of Paneum, which is one of the major battles that happened up by the Sea of Galilee region, Antiochus III ultimately pins Egypt's forces at a pretty you know, secure city of Sidon, which is over on the coast, if you don't know. We'll look at a map in a second. And he ends up defeating the Ptolemaic general, Scopus. This was their top general. Sounds a little like their choicest troops. Are surrounded at Sidon, a well-fortified city. So what do they do? Antiochus III sieges and puts a siege on Sidon and ultimately puts a siege ramp up and captures Sidon. Sounds a little like he casts a siege ramp, captures a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground as Scopus is defeated and Antiochus rule over Palestine and all of, the, of that region is secured solidly. Now, Antiochus III, as, as quoted here, did the, quite a bit of marching through Israel and the beautiful land throughout these conflicts. If you were to look at this map, you can see these little dotted lines. These are Antiochus's movements and the responses. But the battle we just read about was the siege at Sidon that was started after the great victory Antiochus had here at Paneum or Panias, pushing that, Rome, that general from the south and his choicest troops to this city of Sidon. And they fell there, which is recorded in history in 200 BC. Is God's prophecy, am I boring you, or is, this, is God's prophecy pretty accurate? Can you take God's prophecy and say, I may not have understood it when it was originally given, but mark my words, it has an objective reality, and it's breathed by the Spirit of God, and it is accurate. It goes on, he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, that's Antiochus III, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand with, for, for him or be on his side. Well, this happens. Antiochus the Great, finally after some time, wanted to unite with Ptolemy in the south. Why? Because, again, the Roman Empire is gaining and gaining and gaining. And they're remembering, what about the old days of the, the Greek Empire? Alexander the Great, maybe we, instead of fighting amongst ourselves, let's enter into an alliance to try to ward off Rome. Well, that's what he did. He came making a great peace, or trying to make a, a peaceful arrangement between the two, Albeit, I think it was a little subversive to try to gain control over the South, but what he did was he gave his daughter, Cleopatra, to Ptolemy the V, despite him still being a fairly young boy. Sounds a little like he will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. His goal 
was to try to gain control and bring them down through, through within side by giving them Cleopatra uh, to Ptolemy V. Now, he hoped she would remember her Syrian allegiance and thus he could gain some control and manipulation of the government down there, but the history books bear witness that she did not side with her dad and his hope for controlling Egypt did not come to fruition. Last, last slide here, so you're, if you're getting bored out of, out of your death, if you're, you know, beyond belief. But verse 18, then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he, Antiochus the Great, will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land. Time to hightail it back home. But he will stumble and fall. And be found no more. This almost happened to a T as well. As you look at how this unfolded. Antiochus the Great. We know it happened. Because he turned his attention to the Aegean coast. Sounds a little like coastlands. He went over to recapture Asia Minor and Greece. Why? Because he disliked Rome. He hated them. He said Rome has no business in Asia Minor. He went to go back to this region. To push back against Rome. But. As the prophecy foretells, he was resisted by Claudius Scipio, a Roman commander. And in retreat to his homeland, Antiochus the Great died in 187 BC. The story goes that Rome, being the way they were, demanding exacting all kinds of taxes and gold and silver from whoever they conquered, as Antiochus the Great retreats, he's looking for any way to get a payment back to Claudius Scipio to keep them from continuing to press into his kingdom. The story goes that what he did in in looting uh, some areas for gold and silver, he stumbled. Sounds a little like the prophecy. He was trampled to death, if you read your history books on Antiochus the Great. Sounds a little like he will stumble and fall and be found no more. For such a great general, just he didn't die in battle. He stumbles on his way home. While he's running back to his fortress, and he dies. That was a fast little, well, maybe it wasn't too fast. But anyway, that was a, that was a run through 355 years of history and a handful of prophetic, Holy Spirit-inspired divine words. Can we trust God's prophetic word? Are they accurate? That prophecy is so accurate, like I said, the critics call it a fraud. I say no. It's because it was inspired by the creator of the universe who knows all things. He saw it before it was going to happen. In fact, he says that those events, he calls it, they're inscribed in the writing of truth at the beginning, at the end of Daniel 10. Was it a fraud? I'm here today to tell you it wasn't a fraud. In our postmodern world that bases truth off of individual experiences, relativism, relativistic truth that can be whatever you want it to be, there is no objective, certain, absolute truth. Peter would beg to differ. More certain than any human experience, more sure than anything born of human will, is that which God breathed and spoke through his holy prophets. 
The question is, do we believe that? Do we read those prophecies? Or do we run to the endless books of man's interpretations of the prophecies, hoping to find some answers from other human ingenuity? Or even worse than that, we end up being duped by a false teacher because we're not finding ourselves going back and remaining in the prophetic word of God. The Bible says he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We've been given everything we need. And his highest rung of confidence is the word of God. Where in the Bible is that verse? Second Peter chapter 1. It is the statement that starts off this whole chapter that we've been studying. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We can trust the prophetic word is more sure than anything because God is its basis. Don't be fooled by false teaching. And don't think to yourself, oh, that doesn't happen today. No, it happens today. It's happening in our very city. There's all kinds of mistruth about the scriptures, about Christ. You wonder how at the end of the age they'll come, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. We prophesied. I don't know you. How do you get there? Perhaps you've been sold a bill of goods about who the Messiah is and really was. Who do you say I am is what Christ said. That's a big question. False teachers will give you a lot of answers. Got to be careful where you get your answers from. Turn to the prophetic word made more sure. Inspired by God himself. Let's close. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can have confidence in it. We thank you that we can look at these prophecies as weird and as twisting as they are in terms of they take all these weird twists and turns and you're like, what's going on here? How is this king of the south, the north, and daughters, and peace treaties, and all this, and yet you gave that to Daniel, to your people in Israel, so they would understand what was about to happen in those years. They would see the movements of the empires and kingdoms, and they could rest, and they go, our God's got this. Our God's on the throne. He said it would happen this way, and they were able to live through it and trust in you, and they would turn, if and when they turned to your words. Not listening to the false prophets, but listening to the genuine. The prophets like the Daniels, the Jeremiah's, the Isaiah's, Zechariah's, Haggai, Malachi. Guys that gave truth spoken through you, breathed through you. Help us be people that want to live there, bank our life there. May it become a firm foundation and an anchor for our soul. That we can stay firmly rooted in the truth. And be like the Bereans were, that were more noble-minded. When Paul came in and told them his stories, they said, well, that's great. That sounds like a neat thing. We're awesome to hear about your experiences. But let's go back and check it against the prophetic word of Scripture. And they did, and they found that case to be true. And they said, Paul speaks truth. And they moved on. May we be like that here at Christ Community Church. Though we live in a time of darkness, may we take out that lamp of your word and just walk by it, trusting it to be true, accurate, God-inspired. Your very word spoken to us. You've given it to us so that we have everything we need with your spirit within us and your words.
The two work hand in hand. It's an awesome thing to see your spirit bring to mind what? Your very words. Pointing us again back to our foundation. I pray that we will be people that are strong as we go forth. Reading your word. Not looking to the interpretations of man. But seeking to understand and know the time of Christ's return. The events that we see around us. The church time, what it is, what, what is the church about? Where do we find these answers? We find them from your word. May you go forth from us now and go with us as we walk forth from here. In Jesus' awesome name, amen.